Please turn with me in your Bible to Colossians chapter number 3. We noted last time that in this portion of Scripture, there is application being made to the lives of God's people of the doctrine that Paul has already been expounding. The first part of Colossians is chiefly doctrine. The second half of Colossians is chiefly duty. It is the way we live in light of the doctrine that we believe. And so he begins, If or since ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. This is heavenly mindedness. We are to live with heaven on our minds. And he went on to speak of the Christian life, how it is to be lived, the way we are to live before God, and in particular, disowning the old life, as well as displaying the characteristics of the new life. We spoke last time quite a bit concerning disowning the old life of the sinner. There are things that we used to do before we were saved. Those things we have forsaken, we've sought to forsake them, we've sought to repudiate them, and we're now living a new life. Not perfectly, not the way we would want to as the people of God, but certainly things are different now because something has happened to us. I don't want to go over ground that we covered this morning, Uh, But just as an aside here, it's interesting that my son-in-law was referring to that nonsense, that's what I'm going to call it, that's going on at Asbury College in Kentucky. There was one particular video he was referring to that looked like a rave party. It looked like a flash mob jumping and jiving around to loud music. Uh, it was kind of like a some sort of a gym class. I don't know what you would describe it as. But our son-in-law said, that reminds me of the places I went to before I was saved. The music's the same. The atmosphere's the same. The way they're getting on is the same. The dance moves are the same. The only thing that's not there, presumably, is the alcohol and the drugs. They've attached the name of Jesus to something that belongs to the world. Christians are to live a new life. Because a change of heart has taken place. And if a change of heart has taken place, we must expect a change of life to take place. And this is what we spoke about in disowning the old life of the sinner. We mentioned that Christians are to put to death the works of the flesh. You see again that word in verse 5 of chapter 3, mortify. Again, I remind you of the word mortician, the word mortuary. It has to do with death. That's what a mortician does. He deals with death. A mortuary is a place for dead people. So when he says mortify your members, he means put them to death. Put them to death, the works of the flesh. Kill them or starve them to death. That's what he's really saying here. 
And he talks about the various parts of the human body as its members. Mortify your members which are upon the earth. In other words, those things that we use to commit sin. Our eyes, our ears, our hands, our feet, our tongues, whatever. These are the instruments that are employed in committing sin. We're all prone to commit sins of the flesh. So how do we deal with it? We are to deprive the flesh of its strength and power, not in our own strength, of course. But we are, through the Spirit, according to Romans 8.13, to mortify the deeds of the flesh. Of course, Paul does list here certain sins, and he links those sins to the members. Fornication, any illicit sexual activity, uncleanness, impurity, which is wider than physical immorality. It refers to a filthy mind and tongue. Inordinate affection. This is really passion or sensual desires. You could sum it up as lust. That shameful emotion that leads to impurity. Desires leading to deeds. Appetites leading into actions. Then he mentions this. Evil concupiscence. Verse 5. That really refers to evil or wicked cravings. Evil or unholy desires. Out of this craving and evil desire, this concupiscence, there springs all kinds, all manner of sins. And then covetousness, which is idolatry. This is at the heart of all sin. The tenth commandment, when it's broken, really involves the breaking of all the commandments. And I could certainly show you that by going through the commandments, how covetousness comes into play with each and every one of them. All of these works of the flesh that I just mentioned, are to be mortified. They're to be put to death. We are to starve the flesh. Not feed the flesh. Starve the flesh. Because these are all things that God punishes. They belong to the old life. Look with me again at verses 6 and 7. For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. That's those that are not saved. In the which ye also walked some time when ye lived in them. But ye no longer do. This is past tense. This is the old life. And may the Lord keep us from going back to the old ways. Dabbling with those things. Or living on the fringes of those practices. Christians must put off the actual works of the flesh. They must put them to death. But then we go further in this chapter, and we find that Paul deals with the subject of Christians putting off the words of the flesh. See, now we're not just dealing with deeds, but words. Look with me at verses 8 and 9. But now ye also put off all these Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, saying that ye have put off the old man with his deeds. This is where James chapter 3 comes in. We read just a little while ago 
In James chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, even so the tongue is a little member and boasteth great things. Behold how great a matter a little fire kindleth, and the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members, that it defileth the whole body, and setteth on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire of hell. Very strong words about the tongue. Very small thing, the tongue. But very dangerous. So from sensual sins, Paul is really proceeding to deal now with social sins. There are times when Christians might tend to forget these things, imagining that they're not so serious as some of the other aforementioned things. After all, it's more serious, is it not, to be involved in fornication and concupiscence and inordinate affection and so forth. But the Lord shows us here that these things are incompatible with a Christian profession as well. The child of God must make an actual effort to put off the words of the flesh. Now look at the first of these. Now ye also put off all these. Verse 8. Anger. Anger. The word that's used here, the original word, refers to a seething anger which grows. You know, that which burns away that becomes hotter all the time as time passes. A bit like steam in the spout of the kettle, which builds up pressure the more the heat stays on it. It is like that when your heart is like a roaring furnace when you're angry. Let me give you an example of this in the Bible. Go to the Old Testament to 2 Samuel chapter 13. 2 Samuel chapter 13. David had a son by the name of Absalom. And in 2 Samuel chapter 13, we read about him in verse 22. And Absalom spake unto his brother Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had forced his sister Tamar. If you were to read the context, Amnon had a real thing for this girl. She refused his advances, but he kept on until he eventually committed what we would call a rip. And this girl, Tamar, was the sister of Absalom. And because Amnon had done what he did to his sister, the Bible says he had forced his sister, it means he raped her. Absalom was burning away with anger in his heart toward him. Now you go down to verse 23, the next verse. And it came to pass after two full years, now think of that, 24 months have passed, that Absalom had sheep shearers in Baal-Hazar, which is beside Ephraim, and Absalom invited all the king's sons. 
He's going to carry out a plan here. You go down to verse 28. Now Absalom had commanded his servants, saying, Mark ye now when Amnon's heart is merry with wine. And when I say unto you, smite Amnon, then kill him. Fear not, have not I commanded you, be courageous and be valiant. And the servants of Absalom did unto Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, and every man got him up upon his mule and fled. Now what happened here? Absalom had this burning anger, this hatred in his heart for a long time. He wouldn't speak to this man who had forced his sister, but he was waiting his opportunity to have him killed. And a couple of years passed, and Absalom was still determined to have this done, and he did it. That's what anger does. This word anger that's used in Colossians 3 is a seething anger that grows over time. It refers to an abiding anger that includes feelings of revenge. It's like if you want to say holding a grudge. And you're going to hold on to that. You're going to hold on to that until you do something about it to the person that you have a grudge against. That's what this means. Anger. Now that's incompatible with Christianity. That's not Christ-like. Romans 12 verse 19 says, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Now, there may be somebody who does something to you, and you're automatic reaction is I'll get him one of these days I'll get him I'll wait my chance I'll wait my opportunity but when that comes around I'll do it but that's not right there are those times when things happen that shouldn't happen we get a raw deal from somebody else and if we're doing the right thing We can't get it settled between us and them. They refuse to settle. You know what you do? You leave it with the Lord. Say, Lord, you see this. You know this. Vengeance is thine. You'll deal with it. And believe me, God will deal with it. And you'll feel a whole lot better about it in the meantime. Anger. And then you have this other word that follows it in verse 8 of Colossians 3. Wrath. You might say, well, what's the difference between anger and wrath? Surely they're the same thing. Well, no, they're not. Because the word anger is a seething anger that grows. It kind of gets hotter as time goes on. You know, it's a bit like a fuse that burns. But this word wrath is different. It is a sudden, violent outburst of anger. You know when the top comes off of a volcano. That's what this is. When somebody has literally had enough, and that's it. They've reached the point of no return, and boom. Look out. The fury erupts. Kind of like fire breaks out in a bunch of straw. It just gets a hold and it takes over. 
Hot anger. Now that's not compatible with living the Christian life, is it? Let's go back in our Bibles to Luke's Gospel, chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. And reading from verse 28. The Word of God in the context here is referring to the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ Christ said some things that really annoyed these hearers. He used Old Testament examples. He said there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. But none of them Elijah went to except a woman who was a widow in the city of Sarepta. She was a Gentile. So in other words, all the Jews, none of them were touched. Just a Gentile woman. The ones that were listening to it were Jews. They didn't like it. And he went on to say there were many lepers in the time of Elisha, or Elisha the prophet. And he says, and none of them was cleansed, saving Naaman the Syrian. Oh, another Gentile. They didn't like that. And so it says in verse 28 of Luke 4, And all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. That's the word. That's the same Greek word. They were filled with wrath. It means hot anger. It means a sudden, violent outburst of anger. Why were they so angry? Because of what Jesus preached. You know, preaching can have that effect sometimes. When people don't like the preaching. When the Word of God cuts into their hearts. And there's this reaction. But that's not the reaction of a believer. shouldn't be. Wrath. And of course, this wrath that's mentioned caused them to rise up and thrust the Lord out of the city. They led him onto the brow of the hill whereon their city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. But he, passing through the midst of them, went his way. They would have killed the Lord if they could have got away with it. That's how angry they were. And that's how serious a sin this is. This hot anger. It's that kind of thing that causes people to commit murder. Now you go to Galatians chapter 5 and the Apostle Paul actually lists a number of things as being works of the flesh. These are not things associated with spirituality. These are things associated with carnality. Works of the flesh. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 19, now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Now here you have some of these sins already mentioned. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness. But then, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, and so on. There's the word, wrath. It's the same word. Hot, sudden, Violent outburst of anger. You could say, in the case of a person, the kettle boils over. Because now they're in a rage. That is not something that should be associated with Christian living. We're to put off the words of the flesh. We're to put off anger. We're to put off wrath. And then there's another word here. 
malice. Malice. What is that? Well, malice is simply a malignant attitude that plans evil and then rejoices when misery falls on its victim. Let me say that again. This malice is a malignant attitude that plans evil and then rejoices when misery falls on its victim. This is not good. And it certainly is a perverse disposition to have. A malicious Christian is an oxymoron. A malicious Christian is a contradiction in terms. Look again at that great chapter of love, 1 Corinthians 13. This is a beautiful passage of scripture. But when we read verses 4 and 5, and remember that the word charity could be replaced always here with the word love. It says, charity or love suffereth long and is kind. Love envieth not. Love vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. Love doth not behave itself unseemly. Seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil. And again, the Apostle Paul dealt with that same type of thing when he wrote to the Ephesians. This is Christian living. This is how believers are to be. Ephesians 4, from verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath, there's that word wrath again, and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with what? With all malice. There's that word. There's that malignant attitude that plans evil and rejoices when misery falls on its victim. And be ye kind one to another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. And again, isn't it amazing how Paul always introduces the gospel into these matters? Who is our great example in everything? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. There he is on the cross. And what does he say in one of those great sayings? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He doesn't say, Father, deal with them, cut them off. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I'm so glad the Lord has forgiven us. I'm so glad the Lord doesn't exercise malice toward us. A malicious Christian is a contradiction in terms. Then there's this other word, blasphemy. Now, when you read that word in Colossians 3 and verse 8, blasphemy, you automatically are going to think about cursing and swearing and using the Lord's name in vain, right? But that's not what it means. This word blasphemy is not referring to speech Words that are used toward God. But it actually refers, believe it or not, to the use of words in slandering other people or tearing them down. What we might describe as malicious gossip. That's included in it at least. Do we ever use words to slander other people unnecessarily or to tear them down? 
We have to be very careful about that, don't we? It's a great temptation. There are some people we would look at and think, well, they deserve that. But slander is actually something that involves speaking things that are not true quite often. Or may not be true. See, we've got to be careful about impugning someone else's motives. I could think, well, that guy did that for that reason, or that woman did that for that reason, but I don't know that for sure. So I need to be very careful before I repeat that and say, well, they did that because of this. I don't know that they did that because of that. They may have had a different outlook, a different motive. So we have to be careful about this blasphemy, this use of words in slandering others or tearing them down, making them look bad before others. Matthew 15 verse 19. Notice this. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. Now when you look again at that word blasphemies, you're automatically going to think, well that's talking about the Lord in a bad way or using his name in vain. But that is not chiefly what's in view here. Blasphemies, again, has to do with slandering others or tearing them down. And again, Ephesians 4.31 teaches us not to do that. We are to be forgiving one another. Remember this in Psalm 15. This is a very challenging portion of Scripture. I've thought of this many times. Psalm 15 verse 3. It's speaking here about the person who will enjoy communion with God. Who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? Verse 2 says, He that walketh uprightly, and worketh righteousness, and speaketh the truth in his heart. But look at verse 3. He that backbiteth not with his tongue, nor doeth evil to his neighbor, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor. Now what does that mean? Taking up a reproach against your neighbor doesn't mean that you start some talk about somebody else. It is just the matter of receiving it. Listening to it. Somebody tells you something about somebody else and you receive it. Without even finding out if it's true or not. The person who does that is not really walking with God. He's certainly not in fellowship with the Lord. He that backbiteth not with his tongue, nor doeth evil to his neighbor, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor. This, of course, is not talking about standing for truth. This has nothing to do with seeking to do what's right and to challenge somebody else who's doing that which is wrong. This is not referring to that. This is talking, to, this is talking about the kind of malicious backbiting that often happens even among those that profess the Lord's name. Blasphemy. And then there's this filthy communication. Filthy communication. We know what that is. Foul speech. Coarse humor. Obscene language. Now this is something that's normally associated with men. I'm sure you'll agree. When guys get together, 
Sometimes they tell filthy jokes. They talk about things that are very, very inappropriate. I'm not saying it doesn't happen among women because I think it does. But it just doesn't seem to be as associated as much with them as with men. I've lived long enough to be around enough men, whether it be young men in high school or men in places of work or men in just various walks of life to hear enough foul speech and coarse humour and obscene language to do me a lifetime. There are some people with really, really filthy tongues. And when people find out that I'm a Christian, they normally don't tell me the filthy jokes. Because they know I'm not going to appreciate it. But sometimes without knowing it, I might overhear somebody. That should never be found among the people of God. See, the Christian is to be clean in his speech. Even questionable humour we're not to be involved in double meaning words language that could be taken one way or another to mean something filthy as well as something that's wholesome it shouldn't be found among the people of God I'm sure I'm preaching to the choir tonight that you're not involved in any of this but the Bible speaks of it so we have to talk about it filthy communication It's not to be found among God's people. Look at Ephesians 4 verse 29. There the apostle says, Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. That's how we're to speak. The Christian is to be clean in speech. Right here in Colossians, in chapter 4 and verse 6, we have this statement. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer every man. You know what salt does? Salt seasons things. Salt also purifies things. Salt preserves things. All of this is in view in talking about your speech. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt. In other words, let your speech be clean. Let not dirty stories or jokes with double meanings be found in your mouth. Again, just a verse from the Old Testament that comes in here. In the book of Psalms, Psalm 141, and verse number 3, Set a watch, O Lord, before my mouth, keep the door of my lips. The rabbins among the Jews used to say, God has put a natural double guard upon your tongue. Your lips and your teeth, real or false, God has put a double barrier 
for your tongue. They used to also say among the rabbins that God gave you one mouth but two ears. So that you're to be twice as ready to hear as to speak. Oh, that we can always remember that. Filthy communication. And then there's this lying. Lying. Colossians chapter 3 verse 9 says, Lie not one to another. Why? Saying that you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man. See, lying belongs to the old life. You know, there are people who are inveterate liars. Used to say about a certain politician, I'll not mention his name, you always knew he was lying because his lips were moving. It's a sad thing, isn't it? That's a sad testimony to have. He's a liar. The guy couldn't tell the truth if he tried. What a sad thing that is. Now where does the Bible speak about lying, first of all? Well, in the ninth commandment. This is one of the commandments of God. You know it, don't you? Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Bearing false witness is telling lies. But that actually involves much more than just flat out lying. It also involves deliberately trying to deceive someone. You know, sometimes you could deceive someone by not answering a question or by being evasive in the way that you answer it. There was a famous interview once done on ABC television between a very good interrogator, he was a reporter on the BBC, and a man who was one of the chief ministers in the cabinet of the Conservative government at the time. And try as hard as he could, that reporter could not get that politician to answer the question that he posed to him. He must have posed the question in about 25 different ways. And he got the same answer every time. And it ended up with the reporter saying to the man, well, you haven't answered my question. And he says, that's the answer I'm giving you. He was being deliberately evasive because he knew that if he answered a straight yes or no to that question, he was putting himself on the spot and he wasn't prepared to do that. She could say, well, he wasn't lying. Well, he wasn't telling the truth either. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. You know who the father of lies is? The devil. And those who lie are following their father. The devil is a liar and he's the father of lies. The Lord Jesus said that in John chapter 8 and verse 44. Ye are of your father the devil and the lust of your father ye will do. He was a liar from the beginning and a murderer. It's very simple. Don't tell lies and always speak the truth. I've heard people say, well, that was a wee white lie. No, every lie is as black as hell. There are no wee white lies. They're all dark and they're all sinful. One of the most fearful scriptures in all the Bible is in Revelation 21 verse 8. 
it talks about those who are going to be in hell. And it lists them, lists them out. Revelation 21, 8. But the fearful and unbelieving, so those who don't believe the gospel, they're going to be in hell. And the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters, and in case you missed it, and all liars, and all liars shall have their place or their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Lying. It is to be put off. We should seek the truth at the lips of a child of God, particularly a preacher of the word. There's nothing worse than a man who professes to be a minister who doesn't speak the truth. Who tells his congregation lies. And there are a ton of them in the day in which we live. There are men who tell their congregations every week that if they do their best, they'll go to heaven. They'll tell their congregations in as many words they don't need to be born again. A minister friend of mine was visiting a gentleman in hospital. This is a true story, otherwise I wouldn't tell it. Because I'd be guilty of what I'm preaching about right here, which is lying. This minister friend of mine told me this himself. He went to visit an elderly gentleman in the hospital. He witnessed to that man concerning his need of Christ and was urging that man to repent of his sins and to come to Christ. Asked him if he was born again. And this man answered my friend by saying, My minister, he had a minister, my minister told me I don't need any of that nonsense. All that about being born again, my minister said, that's, that's false, that's nonsense. You don't need anything that, you just do your best and be a good citizen. Do as, as much good as you can in your life. And that will get you to heaven. And my friend told him, no, it will not get you to heaven. And if you die trusting in that, you'll be lost, you'll go to hell. If, you're, if you haven't got Christ... And I don't know what transpired between that man's soul and the Lord, but he kept holding on to this that his minister told him. He said, I'll just go with what my minister told me. That minister was a liar. And while we don't have hatred for men, we certainly have a hatred for the things that they teach. Lying, it's to be put off along with all these other sins, put off the way you put off dirty clothes. You know how that is? You're out maybe working in the garden and you get all covered in mud and dirt and soil and dust. And you come, you take all that old stuff off and you throw it in the laundry basket, you go have a shower and you put on your good, clean clothes. That's what's in view here. That you put off all these, like those old dirty clothes, And live as those that are dead to sin, who have been washed, and who are now alive unto God. You're not the way you used to be. As Ephesians 4 from verse 22 puts it, and it's similar language to what's in Colossians. 
that ye put off concerning the former conversation or manner of life, the old man which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. And then it says this, Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Living as those who are dead to sin and alive unto God. Putting off the words of the flesh as well as the works of the flesh. This is the manifestation of our sanctification. You say you're a new creature in Christ. So therefore you are to walk in newness of life. Go back to Colossians 2 verse Number six. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. You find similar language in first John chapter two, because it says there in that chapter of God's Word, first John chapter two, verse six. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk even as he walked. Walking in the light. Walking in newness of life. We've been made new creatures in Christ so we are to walk in newness of life. Something has changed. Romans chapter 6 outlines it, doesn't it? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. The argument of the entire passage is that things are now different. From verse 17 of Romans 6, we can read these words, But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin. Ye were the bond slaves of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. He goes on to say in verse 21, What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. That's the way you lived before you were saved. But now, but now, being made free from sin and become servants to God, you have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. This is gospel living. We believe the gospel. We receive the truth of the gospel that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And having received that gospel, we walk accordingly. We need the Lord's help in doing that, don't we? We always go back to that. Mortify your members which are upon the earth. How? Romans 8.13 tells us. By the Spirit you mortify the deeds of the flesh. May the Lord help us to walk in the Spirit and not to fulfill the works of the flesh.